Welcome to the Artelligence Podcast. I'm Marion Manneker, and we're going to explore the mysteries of the global art market. Inigo Philbrick has emerged in the last several years as one of the contemporary art market's most influential young dealers. His London gallery has just mounted a new show of Rudolf Stingel's instruction paintings. In this conversation, Philbrick makes the case that Stingel is relatively undervalued in relation to his peers and talks about art dealing in general. Inigo Philbrick, uh, thank you for making the time to talk uh, about your new show. My pleasure. Glad to be here. Tell us about the show that's opening. I've organized a show of Rudolf Stingel's instruction paintings, which is a term you don't hear every day, but they're the Stingel paintings that most people know most strongly as Stingel, which are the enamel and oil paintings with a colored ground and a silver mesh laid over the top. And they're a series he began in 1989, and we've got two paintings in the show from 89, one which was included in his first exhibition with Massimo Di Carlo. And we take it up through 1996, which is as the studio grows larger and he gets a bit more successful and the paintings get a bit bigger. And we're really looking at this first body of work, which launched the career and trying to get people to understand what those paintings are about, because they aren't just beautiful abstract paintings. They're inspired by a book that he published. And that's where the name instruction paintings comes from. And we're trying to get that story out there. Does anyone actually make their own using the instructions? This is a great question. I'd love to know. I've had clients at various times ask if I could make a copy for them so they could get it into a house where they have tax problems with the jurisdiction in terms of importing art. But aside from that, which we've never actually done, I don't know if anyone's gone and done it. But is the instruction aspect of it uh, central to their importance or is it just oh, simply... 100%. And the, the manual that he published is illustrated. It shows you with pictures how to make it, kind of like an Ikea instruction booklet that might come with a bookcase or a divan or whatever. And he very much, it seems, intended for these paintings to be made. And I imagine that was almost a joke. It was, oh, you like my new paintings? You think they're beautiful? Great, here you go, do it yourself. And so it's the opposite of Rothko sitting in the studio contemplating how to capture the light. It's very much a DIY technique. But it's also similar to what um, Damien Hirst did with the spot paintings, where he was very um, uh, open about the fact that he, when he made his first few spot paintings, they were pretty good, but the artisans he hired to make them afterwards made them much better than he did. Interesting thing with Stingle is I think it might actually be very much the opposite. I've always had a cutoff for instruction paintings and said that after roughly 96, 97, when they really were, I believe, being predominantly made by assistants, I don't find them as exciting as the early works. And that's not in any way a critique of Stingle. I think the practice evolved and gets more interesting. And what you have happening with the Cellotex works or the self-portraits in 2006, 2007, the animal paintings, the mountain paintings, the copper casts, all of that, the practice is very much alive, but his best instruction paintings are the early ones. And I think specifically 91, 92, 93, 94 is a time when it, to me at least, feels he was very intimately involved in making them. And you see that in how different each individual painting is, whereas the later pictures, you can really put one next to another and not know the difference. You know, it looks like they're factory made.
And, and is that the reason for the show that um, you feel like this is the sort of core uh, piece of his body of work that uh, people are are seeking? I think it's the touchstone. If you want to understand what his work is about, it's really understanding these paintings and the handful of carpet installations that he made right at the beginning of his career. So when he filled Paula Cooper's gallery with carpets, we did the same thing in 2004 at Grand Central and involves the viewer directly in walking into what he thinks of as a very large painting, even though it happens to be a railway station or a gallery space. So if you understand those two components of what he does everything else flows through that. So can we talk a bit about his market? Because the last two years, uh, uh, last year, especially 2015, was a very strong moment for Stengel in uh, the auctions. Absolutely. Absolutely. It kind of reclaimed the ground that he'd lost after a run-up of prices in 2006, 2007, obviously culminating in 2008. But I think a lot of us still, even at the prices today, look at the Stingle market and think that you're talking about a 60-year-old artist who's had extraordinary museum exhibitions with more museum shows on the horizon and think that he actually looks quite affordable for important paintings. Certainly that's my view. I think you've got to be careful to get great paintings. But I think the great paintings remain really within reach, especially when you think of Christopher Wall, Mark Rochon, some of his artists who are considered peers. And, and why do you think there's that differential? Is it because of the sort of abstract nature of his uh, work or, you know, the wallpapers? There's so much about his, his work that's fairly, um, I don't want to say without personality, but not distinctively, uh, recognizably his own work. I think it's partially the fact that he remained a European artist even once he was very active in New York and most of the support came from there and that there hasn't been the same process of education for collectors and private dealers that happened for Christopher Wall or Richard Prince. And I'm thinking particularly of the work that someone like Paris Garstead did in New York of making a case for great Richard Prince cowboy photographs or great Christopher Wall paintings and explaining what differentiates a very strong work from a good work from a less desirable work. And we're in a time where hopefully through shows like the one that I'm organizing, we can start to understand just how rare some things are. You know, how few early instruction paintings were made, how few carpets or wallpaper paintings actually exist in the various sizes, how rare a Plan B painting, which is one of the pattern paintings based on his presentation at Grand Central, are. And that these are things that you have to seek out and evaluate and make sure you're getting something special. So in the market, I often see people saying, I have, a silver, I have a silver carpet painting. And you say, oh, that's fantastic. Can I go and see it? And you get there, and it's actually a matte gray carpet painting. And you think, wow, I'm really glad I didn't take that at face value and just make the purchase. Because these are artworks, and you've got to stand in front of them and get the, get the picture that is worth the money you're paying. And what are the numbers like? You just said people aren't aware of the uh, volume of output. Are are these dozens of works uh, in each of these uh, you know uh, sectors of his market? I think at this point there must absolutely be dozens, and I'm not in any way involved with the studio, and so I'm quite reluctant to comment on precise numbers. I do know that, for instance, with instruction paintings before. 96, 97, pretty much every painting I've ever sold, I've been able to place in an exhibition at the time that it was made. 
And so it certainly feels that everything that was being produced was being produced for a specific show, not just being produced in a kind of factory-like environment. And when you can do that, you can get the books and get the images of early shows and go, oh, wow, this is a 1992 painting and it was in that show in 1992. It gives you an idea of the scarcity. And you feel like you have a a good handle on the volume of output and if not where the works are, at least uh, that most of the works have been placed and, and, uh, you know. Some form I'm pretty or another. centrally placed in the single market, and I'd say that on the secondary side, it's fairly rare for paintings to transact without my having some sort of tangential involvement, just because I'm also someone who gets called for advice a lot by both other dealers and collectors. And sometimes I have someone calling me for advice about a picture they're selling, while I'm simultaneously getting someone else calling me and asking if it's a good painting and they should buy it. And so what do you think is driving this recent um, run-up? Has it been a a major show? Is it uh, sort of gallery shows like yours? It it was interesting to me to look back over the last year or two. It's almost as if there's sort of one from each category been sold. It it, it isn't like there's one type of his work that there's been a lot of activity in uh, in the last uh, year and a half, two years. I agree. I agree. I think he's been very savvy about his gallery representation. And, you know, he's worked with Massimo Di Carlo and Paula Cooper for a long time. And they're both gallerists who supported him when his work wasn't anywhere near as desirable in the marketplace as it is today. And ditto Sadie Coles. I don't mean to leave her out of that list. And then more recently, he's also been working with Larry Gagosian. And that's given him a global and really commercial reach that I don't think the other gallerists have or desire. I think they run a different kind of program. And you look at the space that he's taken over for Larry on 75th and Park, where he's presented four exhibitions in a row of new work this year. And he's kind of playing with this little space that he finds very attractive and is also obviously placing things, we hope, with wonderful collections out of that. And you go on Instagram and these shows are getting dozens of photos uploaded for each one. And that's reaching an audience that he didn't necessarily reach before. We also know that there's a big exhibition coming in Europe, which is rumored to be the Byler, and I assume that's the case, although that's me speaking on hearsay and gossip. But if you look around for an artist who's an evening sale artist who's in his 60s, it's hard to find someone who seems as affordable as Stingle. That's certainly true, and I think you know there's been these punctuated moments in his market. Uh, I'm thinking of the carte blanche sale and um, uh, Philippe Seglow's sale in 2010, if I remember correctly, uh, at uh, Phillips, where there was, uh, I think, a record set for Stingle. And, Absolutely. And, it, for and, and that's one of these instruction paintings too, correct? Or is that a different... No, that, yeah. That's absolutely an instruction painting. And that was then, the market was reset about a year ago and we hit a new record of 4.7 million twice, once for a large copper cast at Phillips. And in Christie's evening sale, they sold an instruction painting that I think was 1994, which they also made $4.7 million for. And that's the interesting thing about Stingle is that you're looking at a really diverse body of work. So if you want to start collecting Stingle, depending on where you come from, you might be interested in these early paintings that I'm showing, 
or you might want something a bit flashier and a bit louder and go for a big gold painting, or maybe you're drawn to the figurative work. But once you start to collect it, in general, I find that people end up with more than one picture. And so there are houses that I can go to with clients who I work with, and in the same room, you might have two or three paintings because the whole practice fits together and it's about building up a group that represents what he does. And that's also always very good for a market. You know, Christopher Wall has the same sort of thing where once you buy a text painting, you're probably going to want an early graffiti flower spray to go with it because that's how you tell the story of that period. And there are artists whose work is complex enough that one gives you an idea and two really fleshes out what they're about. Well, you got exactly to the topic I wanted to get to, which is uh, the collectors. Can you tell me a bit more about the kinds of collections that this work goes into? Is it people primarily interested in contemporary uh, current art, or uh, are these works fitted into uh, a different kind of collection with another story to tell? I'd say it's all of the above. Absolutely. It's, he's an artist who's on the list of art advisors and new collectors. And so you think of the stereotypical hedge fund collector. And a couple of years ago, he would have wanted an Ed Ruscha. Maybe he'd have gotten three or four Ed Ruschets. And today, that kind of person certainly seems to be looking towards getting a Rudolf Stingel painting. In the same vein, I've also sold instruction paintings to people who have big collections of zero type of type art. I've sold figurative paintings to people who collect predominantly old masters, and it attracts a whole breadth of collectors. There's not one single type who pursues the work. What about the self-portraits? I mean, uh, Sotheby's was just making a fairly big deal and and sold quite well uh, a self-portrait a few weeks ago here in New York, and they certainly crop up again and again in his sales as being sort of a a key uh, part of his work. Absolutely. The the self-portraits were made on two scales. They're the little ones, like the one that Sotheby's had, which is roughly... 20 by 16 inches, although I'm probably off on the precise scale. And then there are the large ones, like the one that the Whitney owns, which is currently on view at the museum. And not to go back to Instagram, but again, you go on Instagram and there must be 50 different photographs of people posing in front of this painting. It's become a kind of touchstone of visiting that museum. And the self-portraits are a really small body of work. They're deeply personal. They're not obviously the sexiest of images. You know, it's a man on his 50th birthday contemplating aging and what he's accomplished and what's still left to accomplish. But they're paintings that really speak to people. And you put them up in the house. They're only small, but they hold a big wall. They hold a whole room. But in that same context, uh, you know, uh the context we were just talking about of uh, uh, contemporary art and the abstractions, or is it something uh, else? I mean, I, the, the reason I was asking about them is that they don't seem to fit in the same way um, uh, some of the other works would into a broader group of uh, contemporary art. I think they do in person. Now, the thing about those paintings, if you only see them in reproduction, they don't look like that much because they look a bit like a Richter photorealist painting or uh, just a kind of banal image based on a photograph. And when you see them in person, they're built up in a pointillist manner where they're painted, I believe, from projections. And so the people who are painting them sit there and dot by dot build up a surface that's really tactile. 
and seen in that light in a much more performative way, I think they do fit in very well with contemporary collections. And you see them hanging very easily alongside a lot of painting made in the same period. That That's interesting. And, and do you have... Um you know, you're focusing on the instruction paintings in this show, but and you are obviously involved in this market in a, a deep way. Do you have another sort of group of his works that you think is the next thing to focus on? Absolutely. I think that the pattern paintings, the carpets and the wallpapers are fantastic. And I love the photorealist works. And one of the shows that I hope to do one day is a show joining those two together. So showing portraits, self-portraits, portraits of artists, maybe some of the animal paintings in the context of his pattern paintings. And I like doing shows that pair two artists, which I've done in the past with Mike Kelly and Sterling Ruby or Christopher Wall and Mike Kelly. But it would be very good fun to do that with one artist and just speaking across a period when he was making the, the those two bodies of work overlap. And so the self-portraits start in 2006 the pattern paintings begin in 2002, really 2004, and continue on to the present day and sort of present a snapshot of what he was making in a, let's say, five-year period, I think would be a beautiful exhibition. And I presume when you put together these kinds of shows, you're borrowing a fair amount of the work, uh, you know, in addition to, uh, I assume, having work to sell. Tell me a bit about the uh, collectors. I I assume they're interested in having their works shown in this context, or is it, uh, you know, tough sledding getting them to let go? It's a bit of both. It's a bit of both. I've got a painting in this current show that we're about to open, which I sold to the collector about a month ago. And he knew it was going to come for the exhibition and was fine with that. And we'd hung it in the house while we were agreeing the deal. And I said, you know, do you want me to pick it up now or should we leave it until I need it for the show? And he said, oh, let's leave it until you need it for the show, but no problem. And then I went to pick it up for the show and it was a real fight to actually get it out of his house. And I had to lend him something else and instead until I give it back to him. And that happens. You also get people who didn't even buy their painting from me who are still happy to lend. And it's just, it completely varies with the collector. I suppose that's a good sign when they just won't let it go because they, they're so in love with that it. Situation. <laughs> that's a good one. And, and and where else does the, you know, Stingle lead uh, beyond the artist himself? Uh, we were just talking about the, the connections both between artists and the way relative markets uh, uh, work. Where does Stingle lead you? In terms of other artists to collect? Or other artists you think your clients and uh, ought to be collecting or you want to make a case for? It's a funny thing. I'm not sure that Stingle leads directly anywhere. You know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm very involved in the Way Guyton market and he's someone I really believe in. And you could make an argument that part of what attracted me to Wade is my love of Christopher Wall and that there's a certain relationship between those two artists and instinctually, I say that there absolutely is a relationship between those two painters. But if you put me on the spot and said, what is that relationship? I don't honestly know that I could articulate it in a way that really means something. In terms of other artists that I'm looking at, I've been buying Ken Price. I'm buying more Mike Kelly. But I'm not sure that that's inspired by Rudolph directly or indirectly. 
no, it it certainly seems like those are parallel tracks, and the the Mike Kelly story is a a broader one, a, almost a similar one, but you know a, of its own, uh, you know, depth and complexity. An artist with many different types of work and uh, sort of sub markets developing, especially it looks like the memoryware uh, uh, works uh, for Mike Kelly seem to be a market all their own uh, that is building over time absolutely the irony is i think and i'm just fact checking myself on this while i say it i think everyone i've sold a memoryware to certainly every private person i've sold a memoryware to i think also has stingle in the collection now that's probably more a comment on the fact that if you work with me you probably collect rudolph stingles and anything else but definitely there's some overlap there well how much do you think that is uh, what drives a collection or drives collectors, the building a level of trust with uh, advisors and dealers or the, you know, art historical zeitgeist connections between artists? I think they both exist. I mean, one of the things that often happens with me is you end up in a situation where, for whatever reason, you have to meet someone's client, either because they're coming to see you to view a painting or they want to have a direct conversation with the person who's actually doing the deal. And I'm always amazed by the phobia that people might have that you would try to cut them out of a deal or steal their client. Because for me, the ideal thing is that you have trust with the person you're talking to. And because you two have this great relationship, it saves me the work of having to have a great relationship with the person that you already have a great relationship with. And definitely dealers are influencing collections, just as I think great collectors are influencing dealers. There are people who I buy or sell to who, when they express an interest in something, it makes me stop and think and reconsider and ask, mm, maybe that's more interesting than I'd given it credit for. And and how much do you think this sort of curve of being early, uh, especially uh, in, in price, but price is really just an indication of, you know, uh, broader interest, how important do you think it is for a buyer to feel like they were in early on something versus, uh, say, buying something that they feel so... Um, established and confident in that it takes some of the risk away, even if it involves spending more money? I think the most important thing is to get a work that is absolutely the best of that artist. And that's where whether you're early or late, if you're buying the absolute best thing, then there's no room for criticism and there's no room for real anxiety because you have the best work of that artist. And that to me is much more important than being early. Sometimes it's impossible to be early because no one will sell the best things until the market has some momentum. Right. And we can see that with buyers, they feel more comfortable having things validated, which is a natural uh, uh, human thing, not not to want to get so far out on one end of the extreme that you're in risk of having something that people won't follow you in behind. Uh, it just seems uh, more and more these days that um, – people will pay more for the best rather than work more to find the best for, for sort of the, the, the best deal. It's also about letting the market happen. I remember I was bidding about a year and a half ago for a Carol Dunham painting that was in the Christie's evening sale, and it was from the Sonnabend estate, and it was just one of the absolute best paintings of his wood veneer series. And I was bidding for a client, and I, I can't remember the precise numbers, but he'd asked me to bid for him to 250 or 300. And I said, great, no problem, I'll bid to you for, for that number. And we got to his number, and someone in the room outbid me. 
And so I kept bidding now on my account instead of his account. And I bought the painting for roughly half a million dollars. And I got a phone call after the sale from my client when the bare facts came out saying that I'd bought the painting, who called me and said, you know, what the hell was that? Why didn't you get it for me? And I said, oh, well, I bid to your number, and it went further, so I went to my number, and I got it. And he said, oh, okay, well, that, that seems fair enough. I understand that. And in the aftermath of that price, we found him a painting that I was offered because I'd bought this other painting at auction, which he got for in between the number he wanted to pay and the number that I wanted to pay, and everything worked out. But at some point, values have to change, or no one's motivated to sell. And you always need someone to motivate a market a bit. Oh, entirely. And I thought that was the most interesting part of your story is not that uh, he asked what the hell happened, but that he didn't say, fine, I'll pay that price uh, to acquire that work. <laughs> Precisely. At that point, <laughs> I decided I wanted to have it. So it would have been a would have been a tussle. But I was glad to find him one. And in the end, we're both very happy. Well, that that says so much about the market, right? It, it, it really is uh for people to determine value based on what they feel confident others are willing to pay. And sometimes the strongest statement is a dealer saying, no, I'm happy to pay this and uh, I'm not willing to sell, gives everyone else the confidence they need to uh, uh, pay a greater price on other works. That's been very much my experience with Stingle in particular. And I've been buying Stingle for seven or eight years now. And every time I've bought a painting and then sold it, I've looked around and tried to decide what to do with the money and then just bought another Stingle. And that's been a, you know, that's a story over many, many paintings at this point. And I always feel very comfortable. Well, I guess that makes your life a lot easier. Precisely. Well, it's nice to not be changing horses. And but I assume you're uh, you know as we just discussed, the, Stingle is not the only artist that you you deal in. So uh, the Stingle may be a market you're confident in, but there are others as well, and they're all of a a piece together. A hundred percent. One of the things that I try to do, and that I'm trying to do more and more as my gallery matures, is to not get involved until I'm really confident that it's art that I believe in. And it then makes it much easier to sell things to your clients. They come back to you with something that you sold them. You're still invested in that artist and you still believe in it. And whether they're trading up or trading out or whatever it might be, it makes it easier to give them the help they need. What's awful is someone coming to you with a painting they bought three years ago and saying they want to sell it and you going, mm, I'm not sure I remember that artist or Ooh, I don't deal in that artist anymore. And obviously markets are markets and not everything can go up. But if you keep the focus narrow, you can have a real influence on the things that you're involved in. What does it take for you to get um, feel comfortable that you have a position in an artist that you can start dealing in that artist? You just mentioned, you know, buying work on your own account. Do you need a certain amount of inventory before you feel uh, comfortable sort of saying this is an artist you're uh, dealing in and talking to people about it? Or is it the other way around? You want to sort of be involved in more transactions so you have a sense of real prices and where things are going before you actually start acquiring for your own account? I'd say it's a bit of both. It's the half of one and half the other. You want to have seen some deals and know that things are actually transacting and understand who the buyers and who the sellers are. And then there's also an aspect of sitting with the books and looking at the pictures and trying to place those pictures in the collections or in the museums that they might be in and really get a sense of where the market is. And that's one of the things that gives me great comfort in the single market 
is you show me a painting, and in general, I can tell you where that painting was first shown. Right, and that's part of what makes you an authority once you feel like you have uh, knowledge that no one else has, or at least only a few other people have, and then the value is people being able to come to you and, and access your overview of that particular market, correct? Absolutely. That was a, a, a fascinating look at your market and, and how you do business. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Artelligence Podcast. Visit us at artmarketmonitor.com. 